You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, I'm Gino Borges, curator of the Journey to Impact podcast series. Joining us today is Lisbeth Peters. Lisbeth is the founder and managing partner of Volta Impact, a boutique impact investing intermediary focused on tailor-made financial instruments designed with impact and purpose. She's also active in the impact, she's been active in the impact space for over 15 years and brings a strong network, as well as a deep understanding of how to apply financial solutions to development and social finance challenges. Particularly, Lisbeth has a longstanding track record of engaging with senior leadership across public sector, private sector, and civil society across Sub-Saharan, Africa, and globally. Lisbeth is also a member of Tonic, which is a global impact network of investors that invest in positive social and environmental change. And I'm proud to announce that this conversation with Lisbeth is brought to you as part of a partnership between Poetry of Impact and Tonic. Welcome, Lisbeth. Thank you so much, Gino, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's it's really wonderful to have you, and uh, and I just want to jump right in in terms of how how in the world does somebody in London all of a sudden become so integrated in Africa, and where and where did the sort of the moment of truth come for you and realize like this is my work and this is what not only I want to do but in my heart and my essence suggest that the, this is what I need to do. Yeah, that's a great question. And I have to admit, it, it, it took me a little while to get to that point. Um, and I would say it was probably around 2010, 2011, that it all sort of like came together and all of a sudden made sense. Uh, but the journey towards that, you know, like leads on on, on two tracks. Uh, my earlier track and my earlier career uh, was in mainstream finance, uh, where I really um, was very fortunate in getting taught, you know, like the tools of um, how to use and apply finance um, in various matters, uh, cutting across venture capital, private equity, you know, like public markets. Um, but that left me with a personal frustration, you know, like that um, at the time, it was 99, 2000, like all of my work would go to um, amplifying financial gain, you know, like for investors that in my, you know, like mind, I was, I was in my twenties, you know, like I found we're already rich enough, you know, like, and I come from a background, you know, like with, with deeper, you know, like family values and it, it just didn't feel right. Um, so I, I ventured into uh, the world of development uh, through, you know, like uh, volunteering in microfinance while I was doing my MBA and then afterwards at the World Bank and really enjoyed, you know, like the day to day closeness. And that's where I started, you know, like doing project work in Africa. Uh, the closeness to the impact, you know, like that you can have, you know, like with that kind of work. Um, but I got equally frustrated um, by 
sort of like the slowness with which um, the international development community is able to realize its potential and its results and the actual impact um, and how much, you know, like um, stakeholder management is involved in actually getting to that point. So in 2008, uh, I decided that I wanted to uh, pursue a more entrepreneurial path. And I was fortunate enough to um, sort of like pitch my idea of this boutique uh, impact investment intermediary at the Skoll um, Economic Forum in Oxford. And um, at one of the panels, you know, like somebody like I think it was Anthony Baclavine, you know, like presented the definition of impact investing. And so I didn't end up doing the social venture that I pitched uh, back then, but I did know what to put on my business card from then onwards. Um, and so a few years later, you know, like I started, you know, like getting more and more involved in the impact investing world in, in Africa, which is where, you know, like I sort of like really found my, my calling at the time. And it all started making sense. It all started, you know, like sort of like clicking, uh, making two, you know, like frustrating paths of my earlier career, you know, like and turning that into um, something where I not only feel, you know, like passionate and useful, but I feel like I can bring my own personal wholesome self to everything that I do from from my work, you know, like to my colleagues, to my relationships with my clients um and and the broader ecosystem of impact investment that you know like we've been able to um to foster over the last 15 years so when you use the term wholesome self what does that look like in your life um for me it mostly means that i can show up at work as a ceo of a company in a you know like a small team um being able to uh bring who i am you know, like to the conversation, uh, ensuring that people are heard, ensuring that, you know, like people um, take an inclusive approach. Um, it's embedded within the values, you know, like that we've instilled in our company. Um, they go hand in hand, you know, like on one, like one of the values is we care for our people. Uh, the other one is, you know, like we apply uh, analytical rigor. Um, and you can't have one without the other if you work for me. And it means being able to create an environment where you um, allow diversity. Um, my team has uh, 25 members and 14 nationalities um, and, you know, like cuts across race and sexual orientation and religion uh, the way that the United Nations does. And was there something that led you or like, is that a natural byproduct of who you are or is that some like in terms of that level of diversity? Because I did research that part and it really stuck out. I was like, wow, this team is probably the most diverse team I've ever seen um, as part <laughs> of, uh, you know, a fund. And so take us through and walk us through how that all sort of manifested. Um, did it start off with an intention or did it real? did it just sort of like, these were the people that started uh, gravitating to me as I shared my intention. Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit the latter. Um, and I, yeah, I probably it originated from a great sense of looking at the other person and what that person can do and having the patience and the care of having that individual being able to develop themselves 
rather than just look at their accomplishments or their short-term performance. So it's a little bit like applying the, the notions of impact investing, but then on human capital development. Mm-hmm. And it means that over time, um, you know, like you you attract, you know, like people that are that are drawn to that. Um, but it's also about giving people the chances to prove themselves. Like this is not a transactional relationship. This is a repeat, you know, like um, relationship where, you know, like you you start cultivating, you know, like talent and you, you, you recognize in people their potential and you give them the, the, the runway to realize that potential. And then you all of a sudden you start seeing that happen and they make, you know, like they make that happen. Um, it, it, it's one of the things that I realized a few years ago that I believe I am from a very privileged background personally. Um, I have benefited from an extraordinary great education. Um, I come from a country, you know, like where my parents, you know, like, um, were well off and my ability to give back, you know, like has been about, transferring not only my skill set but also you know like the um the way that you can nurture talent and human capital um in uh, in a different context and i think that's where the the multicultural aspect of the team has sort of like built up over time and it's not only the ones that are still in my team but also people that have been in our team and our alumni you know like we're i'm just very proud and and, and honored that, you know, like they were and they are, you know, like have chosen to work with me. Yeah. So you mentioned your fortunate and and privileged background in terms of education. Um, And, you know, most of the people that are interviewed here um, on the Poetry of Impact podcast series have some level of resourcefulness and often much, much more than what they personally need or a disproportionate amount, right? And so that either turns them into impact investors or philanthropy or some combination of both. Um, what was your enabling moment? I mean, some people's enabling moment in, in the world of resources comes as a, an exit. Um, they built a business or own stock. Um, some inherited, some inherited late in life, some inherited really early. And I mean, that's often um, a lot of people come into the world of resources at different places in their life. And then yet sometimes they have to match up intentionality around around those resources. Casey, can you walk us through where and where and how your enabling event really occurred? Yeah, I probably need to give a little bit more background because I think my, my you know, like the, the privilege in my background was the uh, human resources and the education that I was given, uh, not necessarily the financial resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm probably rich in, in, in talent, uh, but more poor compared to other, you know, like impact investors and, and, and tonic members in terms of financial resources. You know, there has not been a financial trigger event per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like it's just um, out of that, as I was explaining, like out of that journey from my, my mid-20s, Um, making a conscious decision that I didn't want to make a career that was just going to enrich me financially because that was not satisfying enough um, made me choose a career in impact investing, you know, like at the time where we were still defining the space and, you know, like pioneering in like the field. And it hasn't brought me huge financial richness 
Um, but everything that I have done, I have reinvested in building up the business and building up, you know, like the relationships and, and the ecosystem and, and the field. Um, so I think it was probably the realization that I could do that. And that was my contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sort of like the biggest trigger, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And do you think that that to some extent has helped you be more uh, open-minded and um, creative around uh, Volta Capital in terms of how it approaches, um, you know, problem solving, how it approaches partnerships and relationships. And that is, is that the whole focus isn't about just personal enrichment um, or the team's enrichment, but, you know, I mean, there's something more going on here. A hundred percent. Um, and I think that it is something where when you make that conscious choice and decision, um, you align, you know, like your interests a hundred percent and you don't question. So it's no longer a trade-off. You don't question, oh, am I foregoing financial gain or a bigger salary at another job for the work that I do? You know, like the passion and for the impact, you know, like is 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 driving it. And I think that with um, a lot of the people that work with me and for me, if they've been able to go through that personal journey themselves and that realization and have made that deliberate choice, then it makes it easier. Um, You know, like I've had a lot of conversations with people that sort of like go through their more traditional career first and then sort of like mid-career comments are like, oh, I want to make the move into impact and impact investing. And obviously, you know, like always take the conversation because those are also the talent that we want. Uh, but I think it's different. Like, and, and, and one of the differences that those, you know, like those people need to make, in my opinion, is that sort of like conscious decision to forego um, the pursuit of only financial gain and, and create that better alignment, you know, between their own personal um, values and who they are with what, they, um, what they're looking to get out of work and the experience. And uh, is that typically, I'm guessing you have outside investors that participate in Volta Capital or is it exclusively your own? And, and, and if, it, if you do have outside investors, is that typically their intention as well, that you find you have a very similar types of personality um, alignment? You, you realize like, yeah, I mean, these are really my people because I'm not going to have to explain to them um, or the burden of proof's not on me to maximize you know, financial returns as I'm chasing impact. Right. Uh, We work with external investors, uh, whether that is uh, on very specific projects or, you know, like initiatives uh, or just in general within Volta. And I would say out of the 12 years that I have done that, when that alignment is not there, that's when the problems start. And, you know, like the, the, the trickiest piece when you do an impact investment deal, I think, is to look at all the different stakeholders, you know, like around the table and make sure that, you know, like there is that alignment. And I would say it's not only with co-investors, you know, like or other investors, but it's equally with the entrepreneur or the team that makes the impact happen. And, you know, like the more the most successful impact deals that we have uh, been part of and, and managed are those where there is, I would say, in 70, 80% alignment, you know, like on, on this impact, you know, like directionality. 
and the deals that have gone horribly wrong is mostly because the investors in the deal didn't see eye to eye and we didn't create that alignment before you signed a term sheet or before you, you do the financial close of a transaction. And I, I have to admit, I think the field has evolved a lot in that, especially when it comes to individual transactions and deals. Um, and also, you know, like funds that are being raised. Um, having said that, with more traditional capital coming into the field, there is a, a risk and a danger that we lose sight of how important that alignment is even before you close deals. And what and how do you know alignment? Like, um, like, what does it look like and feel like to you when all of a sudden it's like, yeah, we got it here. And then what does it look and feel like when you don't? So I guess I'm, you know, you've had a, an extensive learning curve, obviously, and you've had a, a numerous amounts of trials, both on alignment and misalignment. But, um, you know, a lot of us work in the field of trying to you know, to do things at scale or to do it, um, you know, with any amount of significance, I mean, you have to put people together, like working together in, in all kinds, in multiple contexts and multiple roles. So you have a unique angle and lens on watching, you know, these um, one rodeo after another, in essence. Um, and some rodeos are a little more wild than, uh, than others. Yes. Um, I would say to, it's at two levels, at the level of sort of like where you create the impact and who's responsible for that, you know, like being able to define that well. And, you know, like I don't, I don't want to sound too sort of like technical or, or nerdy, but the answer to this question or your question is going to be like that, I'm, I'm afraid. So on, on one hand, you know, like the impact, you know, like being able to define it really concretely and work with the entrepreneur you invest in or the people that make that happen operationally, have the discussion as to how much that is embedded in the day-to-day -day of their activities and how much is that alien to their normal operations and being, you know, like imposed by the investors. And, you know, like somebody said to me, you know, like very early on a very, you know, like profound wise thing. It's like, you want to pick the entrepreneur that is going to do the right thing by the impact investors on both aspects of impact and financial returns when you are far away and you're unable to reach that person. And in Africa, that happens a lot <laughs> because people are unreachable, you know, like a lot. And I think that is very, very true. With the investors, um, being able to then go through the details of that impact and the metrics. I use indicators all the time, you know, like the metrics and the indicators. And this is a bit of a, you know, like advocacy for, you know, like proper impact data management, but it's super crucial. And um, the, the rocky rodeos that you refer to were the ones where we left it a little bit too loosey-goosey. Um, and then the second thing with the investors is to actually go through the risk, uh, a risk framework and a very detailed risk assessment, um, flip it on its head, you know, like if shit hits the fan, you know, like, what are we going to do and how are we going to feel about these things? Um, so for me, risk and impact with very clear data driven, you know, like uh, detailed um, elements are, are the absolute key. Can you explain a little bit more about the risk variables? I find that interesting. It's been um, 
part of the last two or three conversations I've had with um, on this podcast series. And um, yeah, it's like a lot of people are, um, um, you know, obviously traditional finance talks about risk all the time, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and in there's some case where I was um, talking to somebody yesterday, Ruth Shaber, who's in the field of, you know, reproductive rights and uh, family planning. And she's actually reframing family planning as she goes to these large corporations as it's a business risk. If like you, like if you fail to provide family planning, uh, you know, a series of outcomes is going to arise and that's going to be expensive. So it's framed as a business risk, risk, which I think is really creative because then it depoliticizes it to, you know, to some extent, because obviously that's a very politicized topic, at least here in the States it is. In your case, um, I think it's a little bit more traditional, but in terms of how you're assessing risk, but um, you have the traditional risk of like the business enterprise, but what other risk variables are you looking at? And then I like that idea of just turning it all upside down and like what happens if like a risk exposure is actualized all across the board? What does our relationship look like as a result of that? Exactly, exactly. And it's sort of like for me, it's taking the the more traditional ESG, you know, like framework that a lot of investors these days are using to um, a little bit more, you know, like intense framework of, you know, like you look at the business risks and the operational risks with every investor will be doing, but then you're also looking at the impact risks, you know, like, and you look at whether like what you were t- telling about the uh, other investor, you know, like are some of these impact risks actually business risks and can you internalize the externality that comes with addressing an impact, you know, like whether it's social or environmental. And then you look at the investor, you know, like risk. And I find that one the most fascinating. If you start unpacking investor risk and you start translating it back into what you were saying, you know, like the severity of, you know, like what would happen if that risk occurs, what's the probability of that risk occurring? And more importantly, what are we going to do to remedy it? And go into detail on that. You know, like the other day we were talking with one co-investor about um, child labor, you know, like and child labor. It's a little bit of an abstract, you know, like thing, but it can happen. And the, the conversation was around what are we going to do if the in- enterprise we're investing in is accused of child labor. Let's not say that it's proven to have child labor, you know, like, but it's accused of it. So it's a reputational risk, you know, like it touches upon a whole, you know, like bunch of things. And if you unpack that, you have to go into your relationship with the enterprise and how the enterprise thinks about child labor. Um, because you can't just rely on, oh, they'll let us know, you know, like if that's the case, and then we'll have a conversation with the CEO. Well, at that point in time, just having a conversation with the CEO is not going to fix anything anymore. You know, like you'll probably have a three hour board call, you know, like thinking about who's going to talk to the press and who's going to, you know, like issue the press release and, you know, like what are we going to do and who's going to hire the independent investigator, you know, like, et cetera. And so, you know, like it's a very interesting conversation, you know, like how do you embed in a more day to day way, you know, like that you can safeguard that this organization is not going to apply to hard labor. Mm. And it goes back to HR policies and it goes back to who's checking on these HR policies and, you know, like how, and it goes back to culture and trust, you know, like of sort of like looking at these various aspects when things are not going bad, you know, like, so that 
you prevent them from happening in the future. So, and also, I'm just going to put this out there and reframe it. Is there, um, how do you deal with the risk of, um, and I don't even know if this exists, and perhaps it does, perhaps it doesn't, um, you know, the risk of, you know, you're in London, um, you know, you're in, you're, you're in this sort of, you know, this privileged position, you're, you know, I mean, self-acknowledged privileged position. How, is part of the risk or the, you know, the perceived colonization risk um, in terms of like, um, why is this, you know, Anglo coming down? And um, it, I guess where I'm going is, is a, take us through the process of when you arrive to the site and the trust building that, you know, that needs to take place. I have never, unfortunately, I've never visited Africa before. So um, I'm speaking with wide sweeping generalizations that I just read about and hear from friends that have been. But inevitably, whenever somebody who looks different or appears different or talks different, there's inevitably at some subconscious level, trust building um, that takes place. And I'd like to understand a little bit more about what your team and you do as a result to actually establish that trust to say, hey, look, I'm here in peace and I'm really here to help. Um, and also a part of that, how do you know when what you initially thought you were helping with is actually more of a limitation and more of a handicapping potentially? Um, yeah. like, you know, it's, it, it's actually, you know, well intentions, you know, I mean, good intentions may not be as good when actually practiced. Yeah, no, those are two really great questions. Sorry, go ahead. No, like especially in a culture that is newer to you than or new to one, for instance. Yes. No, those are really great questions. And I think, you know, like I'm speaking from sort of like 12 or 8, 15 years of experience, you know, like so um, I think the the, the first um, realization that I came from is sort of like answering your second question is that if you're new to it, you know, like and you could potentially, you know, like do more harm than good, you know, like despite your best intentions and you need to personally be very cognizant of that you know like when you when you approach the situation um it's the reason why you know like i've built up such a diverse team like i no longer go in there you know like as the white person um you know like trying to broker a deal i go in there with you know like somebody who is from a different background and a different context and i think the trust building can start very quickly when you address your first question very early on and upfront. Um, and, you know, like it is, it is not about, you know, like the color of skin with which I show up. It is not about the origin of the money that I come with. It is not about um, my own personal intention for wanting to do good in this world. And so therefore, thank you. You know, like I'm going to be able to do this, you know, like and fulfill my own personal you know, like journey um, or satisfaction things to you. Um, let's be open about that upfront. And then therefore we can park it and put it aside and focus on what really matters, which is, you know, like here's the two or three things that I can bring, you know, like to you wanting to realize your dreams. Um, as in the African entrepreneur, you know, like who wants to, you know, like do something and let's have that conversation as if, you know, like we were, you know, like peers or from the same background, you know, like, et cetera. 
And I think it goes back to what we were talking about very early on. The diversity of my team helps me with that because they hold me accountable too. you know, like the moment that there are like we, we have open debates, you know, like about um, colonial relationships and about the past and about history and about, you know, like even in the other day, I had three of my African colleagues debating about the the differences across African uh, populations, the way that I would joke with a colleague from France or, you know, like a friend from Germany about the differences between a German, a Frenchman, a Belgian. And, you know, like, so you, you realize that you have to understand, you know, like those things in before or not before, like while you're doing this kind of work um, so that you can avoid, you know, like coming there with the naivete of not realizing that and not recognizing that. But it does take uh, years, you know, like of, uh, of experience. And I, I am very fortunate my early days in, at the World Bank, for example, took me to a small microfinance project in Timbuktu in Mali, which is in the north of Mali. It's a very remote, you know, like place. And I used to, to go there at least once a year, you know, like to do the annual evaluation and monitoring uh, of the project. And so sometimes, you know, like jokingly, you know, like I the other day walked into a boardroom uh, full of, you know, like Kenyans. Um, and they were kind of like looking at me sort of like going, well, well who, who brought the white woman from London, you know, like to the meeting? Um, and about half an hour later, you know, like I jokingly, you know, like one of them is like, look, you know, you don't, I, we walked through the presentation and my credentials and, you know, like what the Volta has been doing already in the last 10 years. And I'm like, look, if you don't believe the PowerPoint slides, you know, like with the qualifications, I can tell you that I know Timbuktu better than you do and I've been there more often than you have and I will challenge anybody in this room if you know like that weren't the case and you know like it sort of like takes the tension out of it and kind of like makes it real you know <laughs> yeah 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 um I wanted to ask you uh because a lot of this questioning is actually a discovery process for myself and you know in a lot of cases um you know I'm speaking to or conversing with people that have some sense of what the topic area is uh but in, but in this case I haven't so it, it's mm -hmm. I feel sort of this genuine curiosity um and I want to end with, I think, my last curious question, and it's a, it's, it's a question that I face as an investor and just as a global citizen, and yes, somebody who wants to live locally as well. How do you sort of navigate the question that um, it's like you, your work is so far away from where your somatic body is in your small concentric circle of where you can have a direct sensorial influence daily and you can actually feel it and so forth so i mean there is an esoteric but like the further our impact is away from us there's a certain type of esoteric abstract um it gets sort of couched in the semiotic context right as opposed to the person that walks out their door and grows flowers um down the block picks the flowers and has a flower stand and sees the person buying the flowers and they're smiling and they share the story. I guess where I'm going with this is how do you manage that dialectic between sort of the inherent longing to, to be connected locally and also to be interested in what's happening and influencing globally? Yeah. 
And I think I'm going to put your question in the context of the COVID crisis that we're currently going through. Sure. Um, because I think in, in February, if you would have asked me this question in February, I would have said, well, you, you visit frequently and you really get to know, you know, like the local context and the local culture. And that obviously hasn't happened uh, much in the last uh, six to seven months. I think it's about building uh, close relationships. You know, like I think the reason why the lady on the flower stand is so appealing is because you will build up a, a close relationship or a relationship with that person every day that you walk by there and you could walk by there. Um, and when you're further and more remote, you need to make a deliberate effort to create that kind of connectivity um, rather than, you know, like use serendipitous moments or sort of like more organic, you know, like ways that that happens. And today's, you know, like technology and communication means have meant that that is far easier than it used to be. Like, as I mentioned before, like I used to have to fly to Timbuktu, you know, like, and then if I wanted to be in touch with the project, you have to call long distance and, you know, like communication was a challenge, etc. Whereas now over the last six months, I talk to all of my Kenyan colleagues at least, you know, like once a day. Um, and we're on WhatsApp, just like we're on WhatsApp with the London colleagues and, you know, like with other people. And so there, there doesn't seem to be a difference between, you know, like the connectivity of team members, regardless of whether they're based in Kenya or they're based in, uh, in Johannesburg or they're based here in London. Um, so I think that that helps. You need to be more deliberate about building those relationships and you need to keep the frequency of communication, you know, like really well so that you um, mitigate that immediate sense of being remote and being far away. Wow, that's, that's so beautifully said. Lisbeth, uh, you have a knack for uh, connecting a lot of uh, dots and um, I'm really moved by your story and I'm, and I'm really safely convinced that a lot of others will be as well as we're able to share your story in particular, how, how you realized, um, how you're navigating that dance between the institutional and social imperative to personalize or to personally enrich ourselves first and maybe at all, you know, at all costs and all extremes to, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of material accumulation that's necessary for me to continue my mission, for me to actually live a healthy life, so forth. But I think what I, my real takeaway and feeling into this is that you also realize that because of that liberty, you're able to respond to situations in perhaps ways that you wouldn't have been able to respond in terms of the way you creatively put partnerships, capital um, together and alliances together, because there's not that uh, personal hanging on to that this is about me and I need to keep going like this, but it's realizing that, that it's a combination, it's an ebb and flow. It's an ebb and flow of take, give, take, give. And that's for everybody involved with all the stakeholders that, I mean, you are touching. And so thanks so much for uh, sharing the story and, and doing it in a fun, um, you know, authentic or reflective way. I mean, I loved how you just started pausing and looked up a couple times or you took notes. And, uh, so um, I'm, you're definitely a metabolizer of, um, uh, you know, of ideas. So it's just wonderful to see. An absolute pleasure. Thank you, Gino.
Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 